0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The closure of I-70 through Glenwood Canyon affects lives and livelihoods. Today, a Grand Junction trailer manufacturer worries about his lumber supply, which comes from Denver.
1: I'm a little panicky. I'm hoping that they're going to be able to pull through and come up with a game plan to open up Glenwood Canyon pretty quick.
0: What might that game plan look like? I'll ask a civil engineer who helped design that stretch of highway. Could it have been more resilient? Then, pandemic letters from both sides of the divide. We can't go
2: to a restaurant or to Paris, but we can still lose ourselves in the wilderness we love. What if one doesn't have the luxury of choosing to live and write where and how we do? What if one has but a single patch of sky that she sees out a tiny, smog-smeared
3: factory window? A lot of evergreen members don't know their membership has expired. It's easy to keep your evergreen membership current by using your checking account. Learn more at cpr.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Mind-boggling is how we've described all the effects of I-70's closure through Glenwood Canyon on truckers, tourists, locals. And we're getting our head around those effects, on lives and livelihoods, one story at a time. Grand Junction is home to a family-owned company that makes teardrop trailers. We first met Timberleaf's founder, Kevin Mollick on a reporting trip in 2018.
1: Most of the people who get teardrops are more outdoorsy. In other words, these are people who like to go places that are typical... Camper trailer or RV can't go, but don't necessarily want to haul their living room with them <laughs> and a widescreen TV.
0: Now, well, we wondered if the catastrophic mudslide in the canyon was affecting their production line. Kevin's son, Alex, returned our message. Alex, what's your title
1: at Timberleaf? Oh, uh, wear many hats. Sales lead, shop manager, marketing, you take your pick.
0: Alex explained that the company's having a banner year, on track to make about 70 trailers. Normally, it's around 50 or so. And he credits the pandemic. Uh,
1: I think we saw a big resurgence or surgence of interest in camping and the outdoors as a whole away from a lot more people. You know, reconnecting with nature seems to have seen a big boom. And for us in particular, a lot of those people have discovered that that old sleeping pad is not very comfortable.
0: The thing is, this booming trailer business requires lumber.
1: Probably our biggest commodity. Teardrop trailers, since the very first beginnings, were designed so that they could be built by you know World War II vet with their GI Bill with just regular materials. We've got a little bit more interesting sizes of lumber. Most of the sheets that we use are five by five Baltic birch, as opposed to four foot by eight foot that you get from like Home Depot or Lowe's. And so, borrowing from that tradition, we, and especially with our background in woodworking, we build most of our trailers with wood.
0: And this is where things get worrisome. Already because of the pandemic, lumber was in short supply. Mills had to reduce their output because they couldn't be packed with workers. Demand for wood, meanwhile, was through the roof with people freaking out over toilet paper and buying desks to work from home or renovate spaces they were locked down in. Then comes this I 70 closure, and Timberleaf's longtime supplier of Baltic Birch is on the other side of the divide in Denver.
1: They've always been really nice to work with, and one of the biggest benefits is that they do bi weekly deliveries to the Western Slope. But with Uh, Glenwood Canyon closed, they're having to go all the way up into Wyoming, and they're just not able to do that. You know, they don't charge a whole lot for the delivery fee. And in order to double their, you know, drive time on the road, just seems super impractical. And I can't blame them for that. Very
0: understanding. But how does that make you feel as a trailer manufacturer?
1: Uh, A little panicky. I'm hoping that they're going to be able to pull through and come up with a game plan to open up Glenwood Canyon pretty quick. But, you know, as as our primary lumber supplier is on the opposite side of Glenwood Canyon and it's become really difficult for them to get here, you know, we've already been looking at alternative sources, whether it be in town. Uh, we've got some options here, but they don't stock all that much or their suppliers are out of stock. We're even looking to Salt Lake city or potentially bigger orders coming in from California if need be.
0: So would that be a permanent change, do you think, or just to to get you by? I mean, I guess in a way, diversity is helpful, right?
1: Diversity is always good. As we all learned growing up with the game of Monopoly, if you've only got one supplier, it might not be such a good thing. You know, One of the nice things as a manufacturer is if we've got multiple sources for the same product, You know, if one source goes out of stock or if another goes up in price, we can try to keep our costs down or just keep our supply chain pretty consistent.
0: For now, Alex Mollick tells me they can squeak by with the lumber they've squirreled away off-site. I just wonder, like, personally, Alex, what you think about the closure of I-70 through Glenwood Canyon. I mean, it's, you just realize how this little stretch is so vital. Like, what what kind of thoughts have been going through your mind just as a, a person in Colorado, you know?
1: Yeah, so after the fires last year and the initial, like, kind of shutdown, we, you know, we got a taste of everything. And it, it occurred to me that, especially watching the news about semis getting stuck on, like, Cottonwood, or maybe people getting stuck on Independence Passes, there's not a good way around. The only time that I remember prior to that in my life having experienced a big shutdown of Glenwood Canyon was like long time ago. when my grandparents lived over here and we lived in Denver. We were driving over for Thanksgiving and due to snow or rain or something like that, uh, there was a rock slide and it took out part of the road in Glenwood Canyon and we had to go all the way up to steamboat just to get here. And that was a big disruption. Like that was a long detour. So then, last year, after hearing all the news stories and watching the videos and just the smoke and every all the damage over there, it got me thinking, especially in the business sense, that we really need a—I think—a better solution to get around that. Like you know, if you look at the uh, Eisenhower Tunnels, we've got uh, Loveland Pass. That's a really viable, fairly easy to access go-around for commercial vehicles and deliveries. And there's just not that solution for Glenwood Canyon.
0: There's no escape Uh, hatch, you're saying?
1: Yeah, there's absolutely no escape hatch without a substantial detour.
0: That is Alex Mollick of Timberleaf Teardrop Trailers in Grand Junction. The business is eyeing long-term changes because of I-70's short-term closure. Hopefully short-term. Two disaster declarations are aimed at reopening I 70 through Glenwood Canyon as quickly as possible. Governor Polis issued them Friday. Among other things, they allow the state to call in the Colorado Guard for help, and they get the ball rolling on a request for federal assistance. Let's hear now from someone who knows the canyon and that stretch of road inside and out. Civil engineer Ralph Trapani managed the project for CDOT. And
3: Ralph, thanks for your time. Good morning, Ryan. Thanks for having me.
0: I-70 through Glenwood Canyon is considered one of the engineering marvels of the interstate highway system, completed in 1992. Uh, In in many ways, it was your baby. What, What goes through your mind when you see what's transpiring there now?
3: Well, Ryan, a lot of people worked on Glenwood Canyon. <clears throat> I was proud to be the project manager. It's certainly distressing to me to see what's gone on out there. But I've always felt that we were we were teasing Mother Nature out there. And I've said many times before that Mother Nature could wipe this thing out in, in just a moment. If Um, If she had her way, Um, I'm sad about it. I'm particularly sad about the impacts everyone's taking, whether it's a a traveler trying to get to Glenwood Springs to go go ride their mountain bike or the gentleman I just heard from. This does have serious impacts. When
0: you were planning and constructing that stretch of highway, you know, which is really unique within the highway system. uh, How much talk was there specifically of catastrophic slides?
3: Well, Ryan, we did exhaustive geologic reconnaissance in the canyon, both surface um, reconnaissance and also um, subsurface reconnaissance using state-of-the-art methods for the time. We didn't see anything like what we're seeing right now. We did see some of the soft, oozing mudflow events. In fact, we designed for those up at the east end of the canyon, but our reconnaissance never showed any events that were bringing down these amounts of large rock from the upper reaches of Glenwood Canyon. There was no evidence of that at all.
0: Did the words climate change ever enter the discussions back in the 80s and 90s?
3: Well, Ryan, it's kind of like smoking cigarettes. We didn't know about climate change back then. Um, There was a a fair amount of resilience planning done for the time in Glenwood Canyon. As I said, for example, the um, the uh, mud flow, the debris flow um, structures at the east end near Bear Ranch and so on. But we had never, we've, we, there is no evidence at all of these types of catastrophic large rocks coming down in a mud flow like we're seeing right now. There's no evidence in the canyon at all of that.
0: I know that you continue to consult on projects. Do you give more thought to climate change now as you're designing
3: Well, absolutely. I've I've been working on a a mine remediation project in northern Canada, and we regularly consider climate change and um, temperature rise and so on up there. What we've experienced in western Colorado is, is to me, unprecedented. In the last 125 years, the average temperature in Garfield and Delta County has gone up 3.6 degrees. In Mesa County, it's gone up 4.2 degrees Fahrenheit. That's what's causing these heat domes, which, tri- which helped exacerbate the fire last summer. Then we get these slow-moving mo- monsoons over the fire scar, which, again, are caused by climate change. You can read the UN report today, and it talks about that. Um, it's really causing an additional problem that I think might require a rethink of this routing.
0: A rethink of this routing... Well, that's something I want to follow up on. You know, we heard earlier that trailer maker and Grand Junction invoke the Eisenhower Tunnel and nearby Loveland Pass sort of release valves for each other if one is down. A safe nearby alternative like that doesn't really exist for Glenwood Canyon. Uh, Although our transportation reporter, Nathaniel Minor, says there's talk of upgrading a 26-mile stretch of road at Cottonwood Pass. And let me state unequivocally that the route... Uh, Currently is seasonal, steep, narrow and dangerous. Uh, But does it seem to you that that would be a decent alternative if Colorado were to invest? Do you think that we're approaching the time when Glenwood Canyon needs to be circumvented entirely?
3: Well, no, I don't think that's the case here, Ryan. Um, you know, Cottonwood Pass was studied back in the late '60s as a possible alternative to Glenwood Pass, along with an alternative to the north up over the flat tops. Both of those alternatives were rejected for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons both of them had was the high, the of course, bringing in a new high altitude crossing, much like Vale Pass. Mm. Cottonwood Pass brings in especially. Um, big challenge because you've got to somehow get the traffic out of the I-70 corridor at Glenwood Springs down a few miles so that they could access Cottonwood Pass off of some of the roads leading from Highway 82. So using Cottonwood Pass brings the full load of interstate traffic right through downtown Glenwood Springs. So while it may be a possibility for a temporary um, detour, for long term, I don't think it would work.
0: What do you think would? I mean, yeah.
3: Well, Ryan, I'm not sure what would work. Again, um, I think that there needs to be another look at the resilience planning for Glenwood Canyon, recognizing the impacts of climate change, Um, the the denuded areas now because of the burn scar, Um, and frankly, sir, I don't have any good solutions to that.
0: Last week, my colleague Avery Lill spoke with CDOT's chief engineer, Steve Harrelson, about the state of I-70 through Glenwood Canyon. I'd like you to hear a snippet of that.
3: What's happened is there's a bridge or a culvert that's designed to take water, and then when a bunch of debris comes in, uh, it clogs that infrastructure, and then it has to go—it needs to keep flowing. So if we can create paths for the debris to get underneath the roadway or— The other alternative is to build what I call bathtubs upstream, where the debris can land in a bathtub and not hit the infrastructure, and then we can remove it safely.
1: Are you
0: familiar with these bathtubs he's referring to?
3: Well, I actually am familiar with them. I've been involved when I was with the highway department with the construction of those on Vail Pass to catch sediment. Um, I, Steve Harrelson is an excellent engineer. I've worked for, worked with him before, and we're lucky to have him as chief engineer in Colorado. Um, Ryan, I've not been out there to see what Steve's been able to see. So that idea may have, um, have some potential. Um, I think the other idea of just trying to get these, um, debris flows and things running under the road, um, has some good uh, potential too. That's essentially what we had designed in at Bear Ranch. Um, for the the debris flows that we had uh, noted um, back during the design.
0: Okay. So what I hear you saying is that you could create a space beneath the highway for the flow. And I think what I heard in uh, Mr. Harrelson's soundbite there is that there's also a way of capturing the debris before it hits the highway. Those are two uh, areas of attack. Do I have that right?
3: yeah, yeah, you've got that right, Ryan. And certainly, one of the options for Glenwood going through Glenwood Canyon was to put the road on a European style highline viaduct that would be well above the roadway and base of the canyon. People that have been to Europe have seen those types of viaducts before. That was um, that was thrown out as an idea because the designers and the citizens committee wanted to keep the road close to the river for the experience of being down in the base of the canyon again in hindsight perhaps what we know now would have pushed us a little harder into elevating the eastbound lane in some areas much as we did with the westbound lane with a large viaducts at the east end of the canyon
0: do you regret not being able to build that more european style road
3: well, Ryan, up until the incidents of the last couple of years, my only regret was because I like building large bridges. And I, I think it would have been a spectacular view from up above. Um, but again, um, based on what the Citizens Committee wanted and the designers wanted back then, I believe we came up with the best solution. The challenge we've got now is somehow modifying that solution to to respond to, res- to climate change and get some resiliency into that into that corridor that we need to do all along I-70 in the mountain corridor. All of I-70 mountain corridor was designed in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So whether it's the Eisenhower Tunnel, Vail Pass, or Glenwood Canyon, I'm just concerned that these sorts of issues are going to continue to affect our mobility across the divide for many, many years. Um,
0: That's a really important point. We are so focused on Glenwood Canyon, but uh, as you say, this is true throughout the corridor. And the question is, will the solutions, just as the current Glenwood Canyon have, only continue to tease Mother Nature? Ralph, thank you so much for being with us. That is civil engineer Ralph Trapani, formerly of CDOT, giving us the long view on I-70 through Glenwood Canyon. Closed highways can keep people apart, and that's something COVID-19 has been doing for a year and a half When Colorado first went on lockdown, authors Amy Irvine and Pam Houston began corresponding an email ritual focused on place, politics, and the pandemic. Their letters are collected in the book Air Mail. We spoke in May. This was an epistolary relationship on either side of the continental divide. Amy, you live in southwestern Colorado. Pam, you live near Creed you'd known of each other. You're both published writers, often focusing on nature and environment. Uh, But do I have it right that you'd never met, Pam?
4: Yeah, that's right. I had read Amy's Desert Cabal and loved it. And uh, we have so many friends in common and so many places we love in common, but we
2: had never met in person.
0: Amy, Pam was someone you knew of, huh?
2: Oh, absolutely. Back way back when, in fact, partway through the book, after I've praised her early work, uh, short story collection, Cowboys Are My Weakness, I confessed partway through our letter writing that actually I had thrown that book against the wall after finishing it. Um, we were really, really honest in these letters to one another. And that book was, well, I had to go to therapy over it and talk to my therapist <laughs> about it. <laughs> And it was because the woman, the protagonist in those stories, <laughs> was not the woman I wanted to be. And of course, I was exactly that woman. It was a real mirror. And here we are several decades later, in some ways still talking about patriarchy and the problems with um, that were at the heart of those stories.
0: So you were both familiar with one another's work. And then you begin this relationship. Let's hear your first letters to each other, lockdown has just begun. And Pam, I think you had the first volley, right?
4: I did indeed. This was March 28th, 2020. Hi, Amy. Greetings from the east-facing side of the Great Divide. One of the things you and I have in common during this pandemic is that unlike most Americans who are sheltering in place, we have unrestricted access to vast parcels of the natural world right out our door. If I step down off my back porch and hop my fence, I am in the Rio Grande National Forest. If I keep walking, in a few hours I'll enter the Weminuche Wilderness, and after a couple days I'll get to the San Juan National Forest, four million acres altogether. I can wander around for weeks up there, especially now that the tourists have been discouraged, without seeing another soul. In this way, we are the opposite of those Italians singing from their balconies. We chose these lives. We were lucky and worked hard and cashed in our white middle-class privilege precisely so we would have unrestricted access to wild country. And even COVID, which is threatening to shut down the entire world, won't keep us out. An amazement, really, as I watch all the parks, state, and national around the country closing. We can't go to a restaurant or to Paris, but we can still lose ourselves in the wilderness we love. I've been thinking about the wildlands that get more use than ours, that grapple with a constant onslaught of people and are suddenly emptied of them. I picture the animals whispering to one another, do you think they're all dead down there? Then I picture them linking arms and dancing around the campfire. I hear the trees bending toward one another and singing. You might have seen the article in Forbes with the headline, Coronavirus lockdown likely saved 77,000 lives in China just by the reduction of air pollution. For all the suffering, heartache, grief, and economic catastrophe this virus will cause, I can't help but wonder what reevaluation of our priorities might come out of it. Will we learn we don't need so many choices? Will we get better at being instead of doing? Will we remember that we are actually nature? And neither its master nor the beneficiary of its charms. Will clean air, just as one example, seem like a thing worth staying home for? Be well, Pam.
0: Author Pam Houston's introductory letter to her fellow Colorado writer, Amy Irvine, We'll hear, we'll hear Irvine's reply as Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. Their correspondence is collected in the new book, Air Mail, Letters of Politics, Pandemics, and Place. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.
1: In 2012, Fred Harris watched cannabis legalization pass him by from a prison cell here in Colorado. Recreational pot was now legal, but that didn't change anything for him. And it left his teenage son in limbo. Like,
2: in my I kind of just like consider a person like that dead, like, you know, unfortunately.
1: I'm Anne-Marie Awad. Hear Fred's story on the latest episode of On Something, available wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Colorado's major east-west artery, I-70, is closed at Glenwood Canyon. And it got us thinking about how cut-off people already felt during the pandemic. So we're listening back to a conversation with two writers who bridged the continental divide through letters. Their correspondence is collected in the new book, Air Mail. Before the break, Pam Houston read her first email to Amy Irvine, Now, Amy's first to Pam.
2: This letter also from late March. Good morning, Pam. Hailing from the other side of the divide, I live off-grid on a remote mesa that connects the 14,000-foot peaks of Colorado's San Juan Mountains with the Red Rock deserts of my Utah homeland. In every direction, there are millions of acres of public forests, canyons, basin, and range. A quick morning walk in a shallow, unremarkable gully might reveal a mountain lion and her two teenagers playing on the hillside, just 50 yards away. A scramble through jumbled boulders might prompt a spotted owl to rush out at you, to graze your head and send you reeling, the scrapes and bruises well worth the price of admission. The day Devin and I decided to marry, we were walking a stone's throw from the house when, in the dirt and duff, two matching arrowheads made themselves known. Like many writers, I believe that something akin to Thoreau's life at Walden was necessary for both craft and soul. Not an hour goes by that I'm not brought to my knees by the lands I live next to, the beauty, the freedom, and the promise that the natural world will go on, despite our species' appetites and expansions. Since our shared governor issued a statewide stay-at-home order, I've been more grateful than ever for this wide open space to wander in, to be in relationship with. At the same time, I am aware that if this life is necessary for stories that connect us to the natural world, we will lose storytellers as quickly as we're losing people to this new virus. This life of ours cannot be the prerequisite. You ask, as public life contracts, if we might realize we need not so many choices, one hopes. What if one doesn't have the luxury of choosing to live and write where and how we do? What if one has but a single patch of sky that she sees out a tiny smog-smeared factory window? If it's the patch of sky in China, it's a big deal. For the first time in a long while, tens of thousands of Chinese citizens can take a breath and not worry that the pollution will kill them. For the first time in many of their children's lives, they are seeing the sky is blue. We've taken these things for granted. Let's hope we get to take them for granted in the future by no longer taking them for granted here and now. I'm also curious to hear you say more about being versus doing. That seems like a major reset for America. How do you think we might manage this shift? So glad to be in conversation. Amy.
0: Well, here we are more than a year later. Does anything you wrote strike you as naive or like Zhezhen? Pam?
4: Um, I you know, I was worried when you said, please read the first letter. (laughs) I was worried I would sound incredibly naive. But honestly, you know, I might have said yes, when we were in September or December, when we were having so many more thousands of deaths than we anticipated, so many more cases worldwide. But now that, you know, now that we've been in it this long, I I'm not so sure I would take any of this back. You know, we we were chronicling a moment that we knew would change us and how we live forever. And, you know, we were trying to take it in and be present to it. And so if we imagined the future slightly wrong, I don't know, you know, I, I think that was part of our task was to, to sit still and witness what we were seeing. And and I think we did a pretty good job of that. And I, I, you know, I think both of us wondered once we figured out it was going to be a book, which was long after. Hmm. Even then, I thought, am I going to regret this? Is this going to seem completely irrelevant, you know, six months from now? Or a year from now. But but I don't think so. I think we were grappling with big questions that we'd been thinking about a long, long time as we've watched the climate collapse, as we watched the Clean Air Act get rescinded, as we watched the Clean Water Act get rescinded. I think that the heart of it and the meat of it pertains and will for as long as we live.
0: Well, just to clue in on something that uh, you said there, that the pandemic in this past year have led to forever changes. Do you do you buy that, Amy?
2: Oh, I think so. I mean, we were on our way to forever changes anyway with climate change. Mm. Um, I think the fires that we saw in our own state this year were evidence of something that we're not going away from, but toward, um, which is a hotter, drier, more fiery future. I also think that there were ways that we realized what we could live without and things that we really needed.
0: Let me probe that for you. What What can you live without?
2: <laughs> um, I can live, I think Pam and I would first and foremost both say a lot of air travel. <laughs> um, I can live without working like Americans work and go back to something sort of civilized. Or, and I'd like to, to continue to push for that, like pe- for people to have a quality of life again where they actually get time with their families, they get enough sleep, you know, that they get some exercise, that they, you know, that all those ways that life has balanced and sustained us, if we don't find those, I don't know how we balance a sustain society or the planet for that matter.
0: You both acknowledge your own privilege in these letters and, uh, you know, the, the image of someone in China who has only the smallest patch of sky Were you concerned that this would sound like kind of like white elitist pandemic experience, Pam? Sure.
4: Of course we were. I mean, we were having a white elitist pandemic experience, you know, so of course it sounded like we were, I'm not wealthy, (laughs) you know, except by a, a world standard where of course I'm wealthy and I was able to have food through the whole pandemic. Um, Miraculously, because of Zoom, I was able to keep my job. I was extremely lucky. And, you know, I I have my university position uh, because of, of how the world works. I understand that, you know. But I also think it's super important that we don't stop having these conversations just because we come at them from a position of some privilege. I was also kicked out of my house as a young person. I also lived in my tent for three years. Like, you know, we're all these mixed bags of privilege and hardship. And white people in general have a lot of learning to do and a lot of listening to do. But I also don't think that means that we shouldn't be talking about whether we should get on airplanes once a week for our jobs or how we can help bring about social justice even though we are not the recipients of much of the violence that comes because social justice is broken in this country like Mm -hmm. i think we have to be part of the conversation so we worked very hard at trying to fess up to our own privilege and also to speak in real ways about how we can work toward changing the story of this country
0: Nature and the West are core to both of you as authors, as people. Pam, your books indeed include Deep Creek and Cowboys Are My Weakness. Amy, you've written Trespass and Desert Cabal. If I can have each of you describe the spot in Colorado where you were in lockdown and how your relationship to those places changed in the pandemic. Amy?
2: You know, the very first day of lockdown, I knew that I'd be fortunate because I live on a remote Mesa where we had infinite freedoms in terms of getting outside and having an adventure or an encounter with, you know, an animal or just there was a way that we weren't locked in. And, you know, hearing from my friends in big cities who were stuck in tiny apartments or students that were alone Uh, very isolated and unable to make contact with people and just what um, another Native friend who uh, was in a domestic violence situation and needed to get out of there in the middle of everything being shut down. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had this spaciousness, but I was also really painfully aware of the people in my life or beyond my life that were really in a tight spot and had no way to blow off steam or escape the situation that they were in. And that just sort of amplified, I think, what's been a problem in this country for a long time. Um, the, The social injustice is so apparent in housing and how much we can get away and get out and what kind of access we have to public lands. I think the second part of that is a lot of the quiet, lonely little places that I go to suddenly because everybody was home and traveling with their camper vans um, and looking for new places to recreate and people falling in love again with the nation's own public lands. There were a lot of people out there. And I live sort of sandwiched between uh, Moab, Utah and Telluride, Colorado. And those are two very privileged places, top destinations for recreationists. And when those ha- towns couldn't, you know, hold all the people that were seeking so- an adventure there, they all sort of flooded out into places they haven't been and more power to them for getting out. I mean, that's great. But it, I thought, wow, um, I no longer think of the West as infinite.
0: Oh, my! That's a big shift for you, I have to think.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I knew it was coming. It was, you know, we all have our own bubble, and mine was that there were still so many places to get lost. and and of course, there are. but we're we're that was the whole point of desert cabal in the first place. and then I Pam and I certainly came back to this. is just the sheer numbers of people and what that does to life on the planet.
0: Pam, uh, how did your relationship with place, and specifically the place where you spent lockdown, how did it change in the year or so that we have been living this seeming alternate reality?
4: Well, in the first place, it was wonderful to be there every day and see the seasonal changes. And I was able to nurse a lamb. I raise Icelandic sheep, so I was able to nurse a lamb whose mother rejected him and Um, I was able to watch the snow melt and the river rise and things that my prior life where I was literally back and forth to the Denver airport and on a plane and to a job didn't allow for. I got to discover all kinds of hiking places that I had never been, old clear cuts and things that, you know, just really got into the nooks and crannies of where I live. That said, I was really discouraged by the people in my part of Colorado who didn't believe in the virus and didn't mask and didn't want to take care of each other and that made me really sad because I thought that they would take care of each other you know it's a small community um, and so that really hurt and shocked me honestly I got called a name at the post office a few times for wearing a mask and I actually got not near my house but about 50 miles away I got run off the road by a, a truck with Trump flags. And so th- things happened during the pandemic that that made me feel less safe and, um, and less welcomed into my community. And, and I'm still not over it, <laughs> frankly, you know. I haven't really figured out how to deal with it.
0: Did either of you get COVID? Yes.
2: Yeah. Um, I believe I brought it back from Asia late in 2019. Um, I wasn't tested. I was a few weeks ahead of the whole thing, it seems. Um, but I suspect it was COVID-19 or a COVID. I was very sick with all the classic symptoms and uh, I was treated with three rounds of antibiotics for a very severe pneumonia and I, I'm still not right.
0: I'm sorry to hear that, Amy. Pam, do you want to share a bit of your experience?
4: Sure. I got COVID also undiagnosed in early February 2020 from a good friend of mine who I was sharing a hotel room with uh, on a book tour. You know, again, classic symptoms, loss of taste and smell, sicker than I'd ever been in my life. But I wasn't absolutely sure that it was COVID. I mean, of course, I didn't I had no idea it was COVID then because they hadn't said COVID was in the country. But after the fact, I wasn't sure until About six months later, when I started to get so many of the long COVID symptoms, which has made me more sure (laughs) that it was COVID.
0: Like what, Pam? Uh, uh,
4: A lot of really intense anxiety, quite a bit of nerve pain, weird fatigue that hits out of nowhere for seemingly no reason. That's the most of it. The real thing is anxiety, because I've really never had anxiety and this is not anxiety that's attached to a set of circumstances. It's bodily anxiety. And I have had good friends describe this to me all my life, but I didn't understand it till now.
0: But both of you got COVID early. I mean, you, like, you got COVID before it was cool, I guess. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's I, exactly I what I don't I don't mean say. to make light of your plight, by the way, but I appreciate <laughs> that you laughed. <laughs>
4: um. no. That's exactly what I say about it. I got COVID before COVID was cool.
0: What do you hope readers get out of this? And I know that was a question going into whether to make this a book. Amy?
2: It seems like there's sort of a short range and a long range sort of answer to that. Um, last year I thought we felt very much like could we get these letters out before the election and galvanize people to participate? we felt like we could speak to a lot of privileged white women that that live in Colorado and sort of um, in these small tourist towns that we're in and out of for our work. And because, you know, we pass through them, we go there for groceries, we, you know, all those kinds of things. We noticed that a lot of people who live in those really cushy bubbles weren't as concerned about what was happening in the country and with the election as we were. And I, of course, that's a blanket statement, but our goal was to see if we could just galvanize people to participate in our democracy. Now, looking back, I have sort of a longer range view on it, which is, you know, right now there's multiple (laughs) fictions out there about what reality we're inhabiting, (laughs) And, um, it, it feels really important to have chronicled our experience and to assemble pieces that we, that, of news that we heard or experiences we had along the way. And even in the aftermath of the book, the book tour was (laughs) something because we traveled through Colorado at the height of COVID and did these outdoor distanced readings with people who hadn't been out of their houses all year. And all we can, they're bundled up. It was last fall and, you know, masked. And all we can see are their roomy eyes and their, this look of just utter fatigue and desperation and exhaustion. And we were literally leaving towns as fires were coming in. And people, like the places we stayed were evacuated the next day. And we were giving readings while the ash is raining down from like the Cameron fire on, uh, up near Granby. And mm-hmm. it was an extraordinary, like unforgettable Armageddon book tour, as we ended up calling it. And, you know, to remember that as much, like what people needed and, ha- and the, then the letters we got, the comments afterwards about how uplifting the book felt in a time of extreme isolation and hopelessness felt felt like maybe we did something for a few people. Yeah. I know it helped us. I mean, it kept the, kept us afloat.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you miss the letters? Pam?
4: I miss them so much. And I've really realized this spring, because we're in the same time of year when Amy and I were writing the letters, I realized how much they held me together. They gave me hope for the future. They gave me something to look forward to. They gave me a way to express what I was feeling. And I've really missed them this year um, intensely, especially as we got around to the time of year that were coincident with the letters, which was late March. But the other thing I want to say about, you know, how the book reads now or what is its goal, in addition to everything Amy said, which I completely agree with, the two-tiered goal. um, You know, my whole life at this age has become about empowering women, young women, but not always young women, to step into their own power and to make the world that we can envision if more women were in charge of it. And I do that in very specific ways. I'm a teacher in two graduate programs. I mentor young women writers. But I want all women, whether they're artists or writers or not, to say, okay, that was awful. (laughs) look, <laughs> let's see what we can do to keep that from happening again mm-hmm. and to run for office and to get involved civically and to understand that, you know, this idea that we somehow can't participate just isn't true. It's something we've been taught to believe that we have to unteach. And really, once we get into the meat of the book, you know, that's what the book's about. It's about how do we stop being gaslighted and step into our own power and our own sense of how the world can work. Because I just believe there's so much opportunity there.
0: A pretty obvious reference to a former president there, I think, Pam. Okay, maybe. maybe. Is that a
1: question? (laughs) (laughs) Is
0: that a
2: question?
4: You know, it's not just about him. You know, he was just the... He was Frankenstein's monster. It's the way we've been told all our lives to help and assist and be quiet. And that's the thing that can't continue if we have any hope of surviving.
0: Amy, do you miss the letters?
2: Oh, terribly. And I'm having the same experience. Like, oh, it's spring. And I texted Pam the other day and I'm like, are you mad at me? Because I, (laughs) where are you? And we've both been very busy and we've both been trying to get our feet under us again. Like, how do we live now? How do we write now? How do we teach now? And um, there's sort of all this sort of rubble to dig out from under. I think, I'm guessing we all have a little bit of PTSD that we haven't even learned how to articulate yet in terms of last year. And we were kind of glued to each other's sides last year and literally held one another up. And I feel like I'm missing this appendage or ha- my twin. And um, it says a lot about the power of the sisterhood. It says a lot about the power of writing letters, taking that time and devoting it to getting your ideas on paper and responding to somebody else's and, and how much... There's this intimacy and this intelligence that comes through that doesn't in our other forms of communication these days,
0: yeah, I'm trying to picture your texts back and forth as a book, and it seems a little less delicious. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, we really didn't text while we were writing while we were writing letters they were emailed and typed into a computer but we took them very seriously as letters as Pam likes to say we were trying to impress each other and we had to come up we had to google the word what we know about the bromance that men can have with one another but apparently when two women end up really clicking and having this friendship it's what did we decide it was Womance. It's the Womance. <laughs>
0: womance. W-O-M-A-N-C-E. Did this ever result in meeting in person? Who, who wants to take that? I can.
4: Yes. Um, after we had written all the letters, and after we had done about two months' worth of editing in ten days, it turned out that Amy and I were both going to be in Santa Fe on the same weekend in July. And we met outside of her hotel room. I went to the Shake Foundation and got us milkshakes and green chili cheeseburgers. It was Amy and her daughter. And we sat outside 12 feet apart and ate green chili cheeseburgers and drank milkshakes and started to talk at about five o'clock. And at some point, Amy's daughter went to bed. And at two in the morning,
2: we were still talking, (laughs) continuing the conversation. And it was just like we hit the ground running. That was the great thing, is like there was so much to talk about. And it was so easy because we'd already created something.
0: Thanks to both of you, Pam, Amy. I really appreciate it.
2: All right. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Ryan.
0: Amy Irvine and Pam Houston speaking with me in May. Their pandemic letters appear in the new book airmail. Irvine lives in southwestern Colorado. Her books include Desert Cabal and Trespass. Houston lives near Creed and is the author of Cowboys Are My Weakness and Items May Have Shifted. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that's often been remote but remains connected.
1: Carl Bielek.
0: Allie Budner.
1: Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis.
0: Michelle Fulcher.
1: Matt Hers. Michael Hughes.
4: Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill,
0: Pedro Lumbrano.
2: Patrice Mondragon.
0: Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.